0: This week on the Backtable Podcast.
1: You can also see it as an opportunity to engage with your medical oncologist to kind of teach them about what you do and the importance. If local regional therapy, especially a transarterial-based therapy, is going to be in play, why it's important to send the patient to you a little bit earlier if they're thinking about it, because... I guarantee you, your medical oncologist has no idea of what you do and the effects of all of that. They just know from a cerebral standpoint, okay, Bev may cause some problems for my interventional radiologist. But if you engage with them and explain to them exactly what you do, they may decide, okay, you know what? I may not use the Bev. I may go more towards a taste or Y90 first.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief word from our sponsors.
2: AstraZeneca is honored to be a part of the oncology community. We know that to achieve our ambition of redefining cancer care, we are only a part of
1: the puzzle. We must come together alongside the cancer community, including patients, caregivers, advocacy groups, researchers, clinicians, and policymakers
2: to bring about real change and impact outcomes for those diagnosed with cancer. AstraZeneca has the vision to redefine cancer care and one day eliminate cancer as a cause of death.
0: Now, back to the show. All right, this is kind of a special podcast episode today. It's sponsored by AstraZeneca and hosted by the Society of Interventional Oncology, SIO. We have two incredible guests in front of us, basically guys that I would consider part of the Mount Rushmore of interventional oncology. And I'm a bit of a fanboy being able to talk to these guys. I remember watching as a resident at SIO probably in 2016 when both of you were speaking. might have been SIO or SIR, but I was just amazed at how how knowledgeable, how well presented you were. And so I guess first off, I'm gonna say welcome, Drs Edward Kim and Dr. Terrence Gade. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be part of this. I'm gonna stop for a second and allow you guys to introduce yourselves.
1: Thanks, Tyler. Ed Kim here from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. It's an honor to be on this show and uh to be on this podcast with both Tyler and Terrence. Thanks very much, Ed. And
2: thanks, Tyler. Really excited to be here. It's a it's a real honor. I'm Terrence Gade. I'm an interventional radiologist at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: Awesome. All right. So can we do a quick icebreaker? I feel like it's just gonna make things easy for me. Now you guys might be I don't know if you're baseball fans or not, but what I always consider to be like one of the the key things to every baseball game is the closer's intro music. Now I've thought <laughs> about if I were in your shoes if I were the closer, what my intro music would be. But this would be like, if you were walking into the Angio suite, what intro music are we listening to?
2: For me, it's got to be White Stripes, Seven Nation Army. I like it. I like (laughs) it.
1: Well, I'm a a big baseball fan right now, just because my hometown team are are the Phillies. But I've always liked uh, Enter Sandman for closing.
0: I picked that for you.
1: (laughs) I was going to say. I I don't know if that's the for uh, IR though, man. I don't know if that's the best for IR We're doing a procedure.
0: Dude, I I was going to say that is definitely Ed Kim's. That is Ed Kim's song is Inner (laughs) Sandman. That is the Mariano Rivera entrance (laughs) song. That's awesome. That's right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, so tell me about your IO practice. How many people are involved in the, the IR aspect of things? We'll dive deeper into the multidisciplinary team, but is it a core group of you that do the majority of the IO? Terrence, I'll let you lead off.
2: So, you know, here we're, we're spread across three institutions. We have about 19 IRs. And I'd say about a good, you know, third to a half of the group are consistently involved in the IO practice. So we have people who specialize in certain areas, certain uh, diseases, but we're doing a lot of neuroendocrine, a lot of HCC, starting to do a lot more MSK work as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, for us, usually about three or four from our group of about a dozen IRs total are ones that really focus on interventional oncology. And more specifically in the liver, we have a large HCC practice. And so I would say the vast majority of our interventions are for HCC cholangio, and metastatic disease as well. But we're focusing mainly on HCC. And then our team, you know, is really a a team approach within IR with obviously our technologists, our nurses, our medical students, residents, and the attendings are all really vital to our operations. And also not to exclude our physician extenders, and a big component of what we do is also our finance section that gets free authorizations and approvals in a timely fashion. So for instance, people who need expedited tear, we can see them in our office hours and have them on the table for mapping within a week and then treated within two weeks from seeing them in office hours. So a big, big team. And then not, and then we'll also, obviously, Tyler will go into uh, the multidisciplinary team, which is also a vital component of our care.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, both of you guys are incredibly well experienced, which is why we have you guys talking about this. And we're going to highlight really the treatment of advanced HCC now, more about the immunotherapy aspect and the IR's role in the immunotherapy game. As we transition to that, I was hoping that one of you guys could kind of give me a background story on systemic therapy for HCC. You know, Terrence or Ed, if y'all want to kind of take it over. I know from a systemic therapy standpoint, I would say that we're still kind of in the infancy of systemic therapy, quite younger than a lot of systemic therapies for other types of cancers.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll I'll start off. I mean, historically speaking, the SHARP and Asia Pacific trials really put serafinib on the map for HCC, where there really wasn't anything available in the advanced stage population. And that had a good run for about a decade. But in terms of the trials, there was like approximately a three month benefit. So I wouldn't say anyone would admit saying that they were you know, excited about putting patients on surafidib. And so I think that for that decade, a lot of local regional therapy was in play in that advanced stage and sometimes really pushing the limits in terms of local regional therapy. And then when Checkmate 40 came out with nivolumab, there was a lot of excitement, even though it was a phase one dose escalation study There was a lot of excitement, especially in this new era of immune checkpoint inhibitors and immunotherapy. It's a very exciting concept that your body can prime itself and attack tumors like it would any type of infection, for instance, and treat it as a foreign body. And so this created a lot of excitement. And then subsequent trials read out that were positive. Uh, And we can go into some of those, and uh, Terrence maybe can expound on those, but... I am brave, you know, 150 and Himalaya and also Linvatinib really provided positive trials with meaningful survival benefit in the advanced stage. Yeah.
2: And I, you know, I think to build on that, you know, that time frame, it's it really been, a you know, up until 2009, two, 2008, 2009, with the sharp and Asia-Pacific trials, like Ed said, we really had very few drugs really making it into phase two trials for HCC. So it was a really challenging time, but the escalation in what we've learned about systemic therapy over the past decade is, is really remarkable. And I think really the, the I'm Brave 115 Himalaya trials really mark a point of departure where we start to understand how powerful combination therapies can be. And you know, I think that, that's been borne out in the systemic therapy trials, but it really provides us a real jumping-off point in when we start to think about local regional therapy in combination with a variety of this different systemic agents, including immunotherapies.
0: Yeah, thank you. So Terrence, I'm going to have to put you on the spot because I remember you actually did this at an SIO presentation. I think it, this was like seven years ago, but you kind of went into the basic science about how immunotherapy works. Would you be willing to do that now or am I, am I putting you too much on the spot?
2: No, I'm happy to talk about what I know. So immunotherapy, as we think about it in clinical medicine, really involves two primary forms of therapies. Uh, those include PD-1 um, and pdl one inhibitors. PD-1 inhibitors largely target T cells, and the pd one inhibitors largely are targeting the tumor cells themselves. Breaking up that interaction through which tumor cells can suppress the immune response when the PD1 ligand binds to the PD1 receptor on the T cells. There's a lot of discussion about which of those is more effective. There's very limited data really about that, although there is one trial I think in colorectal cancer which demonstrates that PD1 inhibitors are are more effective. It can make some sense because you're really targeting the T cells themselves and the other functionalities that PD1 may have, uh, whereas with PDL1 inhibitors you're targeting primarily the tumor cells, but as we're starting to learn, combination therapies are really powerful. So really targeting both sides of that axis can make a lot of sense. So as I understand it, I guess PD-1 and PD-L1,
0: that marriage, when it takes place, tends to basically kind of shut down the immune response. It basically causes it to kind of to blind itself away from, from an attack. Is that correct?
2: That's right. Essentially, it's an interaction that's designed for where tumor cells can actually suppress the typical responses that immune cells have when they encounter foreign bodies. So it's a sort of derivative of a wound response. Nice.
1: I would say it's interesting, uh, Tyler and Terrence, though, because when you look at the phase three RCTs that I've read out, we can certainly go into trial design, but the PD1s have been negative and the PDL1s have been positive. So uh, what's your take on that, Terrence?
2: Well, let's talk about which studies we're talking about in particular.
1: TechMate 459 and also Keynote.
2: It's been very interesting in the context of HEC. right? Single agent therapies have not been very effective, right? I think that that's been the real transition within HEC. So I'm not sure. It's hard to know why there can be some different why those differences exist. But I think that by and large, what we've learned is those combination therapies, that's really what turned the tide, right, in terms of understanding how immunotherapy can be effective in the treatment of HCC. There wasn't a lot of enthusiasm around Checkmate 40, right, because there really wasn't a big response. And I think the other responses have been limited as well and really compelled in comparison to the to Himalaya and I'm Brave 150. So I'm not sure I understand why one might be more effective than the other, but by and large, I don't think as, as monotherapies, either of them was particularly compelling.
0: I think that's going to be an important thing for us to come back to down the road when we talk about, especially that you highlighted it, Terrence, with a, we talk about a single agent being having less of a response, but maybe if there was some type of primer that helped boost the immune response down the road, I think that we might be able to talk about the nice play of IR and oncology in the immunotherapy game. Before we go down that road real quick, let's talk about the HCC practice, and I'm going to start off with you. How do HCC referrals come into your practice?
1: It's probably going to be similar between Terence and myself and yourself as well, Tyler. We're part of a large liver transplant institution. And so, for instance, today I had multidisciplinary office hours with our hepatologists, with our surgeons, and our transplant coordinators. And so we see a lot of our patients together, either who are within transplant criteria or those that are ineligible for transplant, potentially downstaging but also all the palliative patients as well. And just across the street from us are our medical oncology colleagues and our radiation oncology colleagues. And we really offer kind of the patient to see us all in one day, if feasible. And so that really helps individuals that come from a long distance because they have a plan of care formulated on that day. And so our referrals, the the largest of our referrals are from our transplant team. Now, we also have a separate surgical oncology group and obviously... Medical oncology also refers these patients to us. All HCC patients in our institution, our our health system, are presented in our multidisciplinary tumor board once a week, and we go usually through 20 to 30 patients in an hour and formulate a plan for these individuals. So once that is set, various surgeons will refer based on when our office hours for the four of us that focus on interventional oncology, each have days Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday in multidisciplinary office hours, and we'll see patients side by side during those days.
0: And
2: Terence, what about
0: you? Is it a similar process over there at Penn?
2: Yeah, it's a similar process. You know, obviously, uh, multidisciplinary tumor boards playing a really important role in how we see our patients, especially as the healthcare system grows. All, you know, this is happening with a lot of healthcare systems where they're expanding out into the community and trying to really have a focal or center for cancer care, and in particular for us, it's been HEC. And so that multidisciplinary tool reward is that opportunity for providers from across the region to bring their cases and have those discussions and then identify opportunities for us to become involved in care. We also have a multidisciplinary clinic that occurs on Fridays where we're seeing patients along with our oncology, hepatology, and surgical oncology colleagues. You both have said, said a
0: catchword for me, and I was waiting to hear it, the multidisciplinary clinic. Obviously, we're talking about the Mount Sinai and the Penn, you know, like the Ohio State University. We're talking about the top places in the country to do IO. So the multidisciplinary clinic, I think, is the way it should be done at the best places in the world. Obviously, not everyone has that same kind of access, right? And so that's where I think IR's role in the multidisciplinary tumor board is the closest you can get to being part of an integrated team. As we talk about what a multidisciplinary clinic is, just so that we're all on the same page, that's when you're seeing patients alongside the oncologist, and you you both have said that, alongside the hepatologist, the oncology team, the surgical oncology team, the interventional radiology team everybody sees that patient in tandem. You share clinic space. But that's not always how it's going to be for the private practices of the world or places that aren't as well established as what you guys have and what you guys have built. And so that certainly, for places that are not at that level, I think it really, the importance of the tumor board is is critical. And you both said y'all do weekly tumor boards. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And I, I will say one disclaimer on behalf of Tyler and Backtable for the Michigan fans out there. Uh, uh, Tyler didn't mean.
2: I'm very happy you brought that up. As a Michigan grad, I was very disappointed to hear. Yeah, oh, there it is. I,
0: I knew I was I was ready to rub somebody the wrong way. Here we go. I told you, it, Ed. It didn't take me very long. We're only like 20 minutes into this, and I'm I'm That's already right. going for it. All right. So, Ed, you talked about this in your tumor board. Y'all, y'all have somewhere between 20 and 30 patients. You tackle it all in an hour. So obviously, you're incredibly organized, right? To be able to talk about a patient in two to three minutes to turn them over rapidly like that. So. How is it run, who leads it, and what's, what's the IR role in the tumor board?
1: Yeah, so all of the patients have to fit into a template sheet. So it's an Excel spreadsheet with their brief history, date of birth, obviously their, their information, lab values, ECOG performance status, and then proposed plan of care. And then we go over that imaging now in a virtual format that's obviously encrypted and interventional radiology and myself, and also one of my partners, Kirema Garcia-Reyes, we both take turns leading the tumor board from interventional radiology. And then my colleague, who's the head of hepatobiliary surgery, Myron Schwartz, uh, also leads the tumor board. And so these cases are presented. We've been doing it for so long that most of the cases to us are quite straightforward. So plans are formulated within two minutes' time for very straightforward cases, Sometimes you have cases that are a little bit require a little bit more discussion, especially now with systemic therapies in play, specifically checkpoint inhibitors. And we'll get obviously into that discussion later on in this podcast. But it's really led by IR and hepatobiliary surgery transplant.
2: Terce, what about Joel? Yeah, similarly, it's an integrated effort involving multiple specialties. Obviously, transplant surgery, hepatology are playing really central roles in collaboration with IR radiology, diagnostic radiology is a very big part of it. You know, having our our diagnostic colleagues to help us interpret the images and and really provide their expertise is also incredibly valuable, but it really does take a village, uh, so to speak.
0: I love that. Okay, hopefully I've praised you guys enough, but if I haven't, I will say that you you guys have built or helped establish and continue to establish some of the greatest uh, interventional oncology practices in the country. But like I said before, we don't always have these same the same resources, the same information, the same data. How do we do our best to get to the same level as you guys are? You know, from a, Let's say from a private practice standpoint, what can a private practice individual radiologist do to help bring their game up to the same level that you would see at a place like Penn or like Mount Sinai?
1: I would say that's a difficult question for us to answer, Tyler, just because we are in An academic center. And so I can certainly give my perspective and my view to our private practice, our community hospital partners, but it won't translate because I've never been in that that area. I would flip that question actually to you, Tyler. You're a humble individual, but you have built up quite the practice yourself. And so, you know, I would ask you I know you're moderating, but, you know, how did you do it? How did you build up the practice that is quite impressive yourself down in New Orleans?
0: Well, I was jealous of the Ed Kims and the Terrence Gates of the world, <laughs> and so I um, I decided that I wanted I wanted to be like that. No, I so I will say this: for us, it required a lot of. And I one I should take I should take almost zero credit for this. I had some incredible partners that came before me and then some incredible partners that that actually lead our practice that really deserve all the credit when it comes to to where we are but we try to do everything we can to integrate ourselves with the whole hospital team whether it be transplant surgery surgical oncology oncology hepatology man podiatry you know you can find things anywhere I think the mindset that we all have to get to is that we want to be helpful regardless of the situation. And I think as long as we always have the patient's best interest in mind, you know, even if it's something we can't do, we start to build relationships that become the cornerstone to integrating ourselves into the full team. And so I, I will say a lot of a lot of the success that we have, involved stuff that we did with transplant surgery that had absolutely nothing to do with HCC. It had to do with hepatic artery stenosis work. And so that led to more research roles where we, we started looking at our HCC outcomes. And we used to be taste, we used to be a taste heavy place and then we realized that we were probably better suited trying to chase Ed Kim's legacy and razor studies. you know we're trying to be like the best of the best. And that has helped boost our practice and being able to track our outcomes, that has helped integrate us, I should say. But for us, you know, we don't have the same multidisciplinary clinic that you guys do. So we our our presence in the tumor board is critical, and so we try to go. All of us try to attend as much as possible weekly. All right. Well, thanks for flipping that back on me. I'm supposed to be the one asking <laughs> all the questions. We're gonna we're gonna flip back now, and now I'm gonna try to pimp you with all the good stuff.
2: To build on that just a little bit, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of content out there that's available for everyone, right? I mean, I, I think that definitely have had the 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 blessing of being at a center where there's a really well established program. You know, obviously I like what you said, Tyler. I think, you know, at some level, certainly everything that's happening at Penn has been built by others and I've really benefited from that. But I think that you know, being in those multidisciplinary tumor boards and those multidisciplinary clinics, the importance of being up to date on the latest guidelines and the latest data is is so essential. And I think, you know, that content is being generated by our societies. You know, I'll definitely put a plug in for the SIO and the work they've done on the educational level to get that data out there, as well as working through the NCCN to inform those guidelines to make sure that, you know, IO has a voice. But you're starting to see it in other guidelines. You know, I was really excited to see how the ASCO guidelines for HCC and, and advanced stage disease started to incorporate some of the latest data involving combination therapies. So I think we are able to look to other societies as well and other guidelines to understand how they're starting to see our role in, in the care of these patients. Right.
0: And, and Terrence, I think you helped create a lot of the education of SIO or you were you were heavily involved in the SIO education and that's that's one of the key things you know it's basically the home for all in interventional oncology and it's the way for us to get that information it's a concise location for us to kind of get that information yeah, for sure. Let's do the fun stuff. Since we're talking about immunotherapy, and we've kind of we've danced around it, now I'm ready to hit it. Talk to me about these trials that have kind of put us where we are in the in the BCLC algorithm. You know, we can do Embrave 150 or Himalaya. Yeah. Tell me tell me what they are and how immunotherapy fits into the care of an HCC patient. Now,
1: well, I'll start off. I mean, I Embrave 150 and Himalaya are the phase three randomized control trials that have read out, really showing a benefit of a combination of either Dervatremi, which is a PDL one and a CTLA-4 combined immunotherapy agents showing benefit in the in the, uh, patients in the advanced stage. And then IMBrave 150 is a combination of atezolizumab and bevacizumab, also a PDL one and really showing a benefit over serafinib in the advanced patient population. Now we can tease out all the details, but I I think that's a bit much for this podcast, unless you think otherwise, Tyler. No, no, (laughs) Um, we're good. Yeah, I would say that the gist of it is that both of these phase three RCTs showed a benefit in those combination therapies. Now you can choose one or the other, I've had many discussions from medical oncologists from various practices all over the world in terms of what they choose. Some of it is driven by reimbursement and social health care. And some of it is driven by patient factors. For instance, individuals who have varices may not get a Tizobev because they need to get scoped and that might delay the care. And if they have varices, they caution against using it. There's a little bit of controversy now saying that it doesn't really matter, but the, when you read the trial, that's a problem. Right. And so maybe they trend more towards derva-tremi in that situation as opposed to atezobev. So either way, these are now firmly incorporated into the BCLC algorithm for the advanced stage population and potentially creeping into what is now kind of being categorized as the advanced intermediate. And there's also lenvatinib, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor as well. That can be used as first line, but I think most individuals right now are gravitating towards the checkpoint inhibitors. And I think that's
2: you know borne out by the the latest ASCO guidelines for uh, HEC as immunotherapy combination therapy for as first line.
0: Awesome. All right. So real quick, Embrave one hundred and fifty and Himalaya, the two of the the pivotal trials. I, I would say for all of us that that are probably not as well versed in all the literature, they're Terrence said before, SIO has incredible, incredible educational opportunities. I'm going to shamelessly plug, there's a private practice symposium that's going to be hosted on the back end of SIO this year um, on January 29th for all attendees. It's dedicated to the guys that don't have the same kind of access to the data and to the literature and that, you know, some of the the best in the world get. And so it's it's a way to kind of help bring us all to the same level or as close to the same level as we can so that we can... We can all be versed in what we need to do, how to bring those cutting edge treatments and techniques and ideas and opportunities to our patients wherever we are. So another shameless plug, private practice symposium for SIO, it'll be on January 29th following SIO that weekend. All right, now we talked about combination therapy and I think we can call combination therapy two different things. We can call call systemic, two different types of systemic combination therapy. And what I've always kind of cheated and called combination therapy was combination therapy with maybe uh, local regional therapy and another form of systemic therapy. And now I want to, I'm talking to two incredible interventional oncologists. So I, I'm going to steal this opportunity to learn from you. And I know what you're going to say. So I'm going to pause you for a second and I'm going to let Terrence, I'm going to let Terrence lead off. So Terrence, tell me why you would choose one local regional therapy over another, especially when it comes to combination and, and where you would use it.
2: Okay, that's a great question. So to start off, thinking about local regional therapies, between the local regional therapies, you know, I think that's something that as a field, we really need to tout. The fact that we have multiple therapies to treat a single disease, it makes us very unique. And I think it's really about finding the right therapy for the right patient. And so we've started to think about how do we determine that? And I think part of that is under some of the underlying biology of the tumors. We know from our own studies and from some of the literature that's out there, and I will say that there needs to be more data around this, but it appears that the molecular subtypes of HCC will respond differently to different local regional therapies. And so we tend to think about taste first at Penn, but that's informed by things like those molecular subtypes. So, for example, the WINT beta catenin mutant um, HCCs tend to respond well to taste. So, as I'm thinking about that, and when I have that molecular data, we do use that to think about how we're treating these patients. We're thinking about a variety of factors in the, in the context of the stage of the disease, obviously. You know, obviously, there's great data for early-stage disease and uh, response to radioembolization. So that's where we see the lion's share of our tear coming from. And then, you know, depending on the patient's clinical history, we will decide between tear and taste for those uh, intermediate and, in some cases, advanced-stage disease. We have been informed by the tactics and launch trials so that data, I think, is really powerful and important for IOs to consider when they're thinking about integrating systemic therapy with local regional therapy. So we have been able to engage our hepatology and oncology colleagues around the use of limfatinib or serafinib with TACE. And, you know, I don't have hard numbers for that, but we, we have seen some good responses in that context. So that's sort of how we're approaching it, trying to really tailor the therapy to the patient.
0: So I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback on that. You talked about the molecular subtypes of HCC. How I assume that that's probably with the core biopsy. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, that's where we're getting our data at this point. Obviously, there are emerging technologies that are going to allow us to get molecular information a little less invasively, but still, you know, that's that's where we've been able to get the data. And obviously, that that there is some controversy around that biopsy of HCCs is not part of standard uh, of care. And then I understand that. Um, in as much as we don't have a ton of information about how those molecular subtypes are going to inform therapy. But as some of this data comes out, including some of the data that we've been able to generate through some of our clinical research studies, I think it's going to be more and more important and you're starting to see this question being asked and addressed in the oncology world when people are thinking about systemic therapies, because again, these are not harmless therapies, right? The I'm Brave 150 had more than 50% grade three adverse events. You're only gonna get a response in 30% of your patients. So, you know, these therapies need to be applied judiciously and there's more and more data about how different molecular subtypes are going to, or how those molecular subtypes shape the immune microenvironment and what those, the implications are for immunotherapy in that context.
0: So do you biopsy every patient that presents with HCC or is there a selection process that goes through to determine whether or not you're going to biopsy versus not biopsy?
2: We're trying to biopsy as many patients as possible. I think it's, you know, it really does come down to the in the choice of the operator, how they feel about the location of the lesion, the safety of that procedure, and and how they, you know, how they think about treating the patient. I would say in the context of the research we're doing, we are trying to enroll as many patients in that biopsy study as possible, but I'd say that still the majority of patients are not getting biopsy. All
0: right. I know the answer to this, Ed, but I got to ask it. Okay. Why would you choose one local regional therapy over another when when trying to consider some type of combination with another systemic immunotherapy agent? And what would you choose? I think I know the answer, but what would you choose?
1: I, it's not as easy as you're making it out to be, Tyler. I would say that first, going back to the I Am Brave 150 and the Himalaya trials, absolutely positive trials showing survival benefit. But when you do tease a little bit into it, there were some intermediate stage patients that did creep into that study. And when you look at the, you know, Terrence had said the objective response rates in those studies are about 30, 33%. For us as interventional radiologists, that really doesn't excite us right? Because we're used to you know historically the taste is 55 percent it can go up as as high as you know 70, 80 uh, percent if you look at some of the Japanese literature where they go subselective. And then with tear, it can range depending on what stage you you treat. but for instance with our study, with the razor study and the legacy, you saw upwards of 90% complete response, not just subjective response, but complete response in the early stage patients. So again, we're not getting super excited about 30, 33%, but that is something to get excited about, I think in the medical oncology community. But if you tease out that a little bit more, and certainly we've seen these fantastic complete responses, miraculous type responses, I would say, in individuals with large tumors, vascular invasion, and then it looks like it almost completely goes away it's fantastic, but it's only 7%. And offering 7% to our patient population, I don't think anyone gets really excited about that. hey, listen, you come in, you know, you have advanced stage, you have a 7% chance of having a complete response. I think it's good shot when you look at horrific disease that's infiltrative, taking up the majority of the liver and, and vascular invasion everywhere, that we know local regional therapy really won't do anything alone. But still, to me, it's not good enough. Yeah, 7%. So we gotta increase those numbers. And when you look at HCC, it arises in the in the context of chronic liver disease and, and inflammation. In that type of setting, that creates a background of immuno immune suppression. And that's why I think we don't get as high of a response as, as we want. And when you look at Valerie Chu out of Singapore, she did some basic science research when it came to tear. She saw that tear actually upregulated T cells and a host of cells that man, I got to go back to, to medical school to remember, you know, natural killer cells and CD3 positive, CD8 positive, and so on and so on. But we saw that this had actually disrupted the tumor microenvironment, and potentially that can be exploited for an immunomodulatory effect, which is a fancy way of saying those checkpoint inhibitors potentially could improve their response rates for individuals with HCC. And so for me, I like a radiation-based therapy to be transparent. There's also data with external beam radiation as well, but obviously I'm more biased towards uh, Y90, tear to immunomodulate checkpoint inhibitors because for me, radiation is indiscriminate. And so we can modulate, as you were saying before, giving a lower dose or we can give a higher dose. And for me, in the advanced stage, you also look at the subset of patients with vascular invasion in both of those studies, and they didn't do so hot. But we have studies like dosisphere that show that if even with BP2, BP3 invasion, you target the portal vein on your mapping study, that is our marker for success. And if we target it well, you saw a very high median overall survival benefit in that patient cohort. And so for me, I would like to combine Y90 or TEAR with checkpoint inhibitors, because I think that will help potentially disrupt the tumor microenvironment and help the checkpoint inhibitor with its effects and there is basic science that has been published on this and we've uh, had multiple articles now published showing the safety of combining a checkpoint inhibitor and for me that could potentially be a more cost-effective way of treating patients because we have a study out of Seoul National University where they combined single-agent drovalumab with radioembolization in the advanced stage population and showed a, a significant survival benefit in that study. And so for me, the combination of a TKI or a, C- a CTLA-4 is really just trying to potentiate the checkpoint inhibitor. Potentially, we can do it, I never thought I would say this, but in a more cost-effective manner with radioembolization as opposed to dual agents. Because all you're trying to do, let's say even with a TKI, that's, what, that's the argument for taste as well or any type of embol- embolization, the TKI causes that kind of angiogenesis to constrict, and you you cause kind of a release of biomarkers. And as Terrence was saying before, taste could potentially achieve that as well. So I think ultimately we're going to try and mix and match, try to find the best way, certainly, but potentially a cost-effective way of treating these individuals.
0: I like it. I think it all comes back to the primer effect, like you were highlighting, Ed. You know, it's, it's whatever it takes to get the primer effect for the immunotherapy to work.
2: I think it's, a, just to build on that, you know, I think, you know, it's such, an, it's such an interesting topic, generally, when we think about this. And, and, you know, both of our local regional therapies, endovascular local regional therapies have really, well, all of our local regional therapies, but we're focused on endovascular, have been shown to stimulate the immune microenvironment. And, you know, it, they're very different therapies than the antivascular therapies we've been talking about, right? And they both have really profound effects on the microenvironment in terms of what it's doing to the immune compartment itself how it's modulating the tumor cells themselves and how those are conditioning the microenvironment and how that affects the immune microenvironment and the function of the immune cells. And so I think we have a lot to learn. And, you know, we really, there'll be some exciting data coming out soon, we hope, around this. But there's a lot to learn about how we think about our therapy specifically and really not just really synergizing our local regional therapies with different immunotherapies. And the other aspect of this is I think in the long term, we're not going to be limited to checkpoint inhibitors, right? We're going to we're gonna have a lot of other therapies that are modulating other immune compartments, in particular dendritic cells, which I think are going to have maybe even better suited to synergizing with our therapies. So I think it's an exciting time. And I think there's a lot of data and a lot of learning to do over the next several years to inform how we can best do this. And I think that's the biggest question going forward. A quick clarification. What were
0: the ob- objective response rates in Razor? I remember them being pretty high, but how, it was was it ninety eight percent objective response rates are pretty pretty high. Then yeah, Ed Kim knocks them down with radiation. That's the one thing we were able to take away from that. Now, let's say I have a patient with HCC. When do you look at a patient with HCC and say this is somebody that would benefit from combination therapy, being local regional and immuno?
1: I would say as a simple, straightforward answer. All, most advanced stage population, if they're eligible for local regional therapy, they will also get systemic therapy, usually in the form of a checkpoint inhibitor, either atezobev or dervatremi. So that's, that's the simple answer. I would say that in the intermediate stage, now for multifocal bilobar disease that is innumerable, we tend to either go straight to systemic or treat one side of the lobe, usually with the most disease, with tear. And that's not, the terrorist purpose in that situation isn't to elicit an objective response per se to that low, but is theoretically as an immunomodulatory effect for the systemic therapy. Now, this has yet to be proved, but there are signals from various studies that show that there is a potential benefit in that type of situation. And just recently in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, Yo et al. looked at meta-analysis of individuals with HCC who received immunotherapy. Versus those who received the combination of immunotherapy and tear and showed a survival benefit in that patient population with the combination of 19.8 months versus 9.5 months for all comers. So there is, again, this was just, it hasn't been in print yet, but it was just released in September. But this is more and more evidence coming out that the potential synergy of tear and immunotherapy could be beneficial for patients. But
0: what about you, Terrence?
2: Yeah, you know, it's really a decision I think that needs for us is made in concert with our uh, oncology and hepatology colleagues about, you know, when a patient, as Ed said, is, has reached a point where they become candidates for systemic therapy and how we think about layering in a local regional therapy for that. You know, in the context of really bulky disease, I think there's a real benefit there. I think what we know about checkpoint inhibition and modulation of the endogenous immune response in general is that it does better with a, a smaller disease burden, you know, especially in some of these patients who have really large burden disease. And so in those contexts, we've seen a lot of enthusiasm from our colleagues about layering in local regional therapy. I think like Ed said, in the absence of evidence, it's it's a it's a, a difficult question to answer, especially because, you know, in the real world, we're seeing, like Ed said, patients getting both of these therapies, but it's hard to interpret data so far because the scheduling is not consistent across patients. And so, you know, how to how to and I think that is gonna be one of the most important questions for us is how to layer that in. And, you know, there's data coming out of MGH about how checkpoint inhibitors are normalizing the vasculature, right? And, you know, as we think about our therapies, which are, you know, endovascular, you know, it may be that having a checkpoint inhibitor on board prior to our therapies not only can help with priming the immune system, but or modulating the immune system, but also enhancing our ability to deliver our therapies. So I think we have a lot to learn about that scheduling, and trying to interpret the data when we have this variation makes it a little bit more complicated.
0: I want to ask you a question to follow that, because you talked about modulating the treatment response, but what about, do you ever see a role for immunotherapy even in the early stage patient, not necessarily as the primary treatment, but maybe as a adjuvant treatment after after a favorable response, and whether it be resection, ablation, Y90, taste anything, in an early stage patient, do you ever see a role for immunotherapy there?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it hasn't been published yet from a peer reviewed process, but the I am Brave O five O has been making the rounds in resectable patients and blatable patients with high risk features now. It's debatable in terms of this study of what the high-risk features are because they included ablation for lesions up to 5 centimeters in size, although the median size was much smaller. But I do think we can take—and it was a a positive study, again, not peer-reviewed—but I think we can certainly draw some inspiration from this study where we do have individuals who are, by the strict letter of the law, high-risk maybe they're um, larger tumors with high AFPs in the thousands. On explant, there's microvascular invasion, or there's maybe an infiltrative appearance, etc. So these types of individuals certainly could uh, benefit from an adjuvant therapy of a checkpoint inhibitor. And this can include ablation and, and certainly Y90. rad can expand Again, within legacy study, it was solitary HCC up to eight centimeters in size. And so those patients who re- achieve a complete response, but again, have high risk features, let's say high alpha fetoprotein, you know, infiltrative appearance could potentially benefit from an adjuvant therapy. Now, what is the goal of that adjuvant therapy is another question. If, if these patients are transplant eligible, it's a controversial issue. But here at Sinai, we will use checkpoint inhibitors to sometimes... Bridge patients to transplant, but I know that there are some institutions that are quite cautious of doing that. Or you can just use it as a curative intent, with the definitive treatment being either resection or local regional therapy, and then providing that adjuvant therapy to prevent disease from progressing. So these are again kind of a new world we're living in with these checkpoint inhibitors.
2: And you know, to build on that, I mean, I, I think you know the data that came out of Hopkins a couple of years ago, where they combined neoadjuvant, Cabo, and Nevo to really convert locally advanced HCC into resectable disease underscores, I think, the role for these therapies in that earlier stage disease. And the question of, you know, as we start to layer those therapies in with local regional therapies, what can those outcomes look like? I think we can even, you know, we can build on that. And I think that there's opportunity to really change outcomes for that patient population. This is something I was going to
0: ask Ed. you kind of alluded to it. You said that, you know, y'all are even doing adjuvant immuno for some of these bridge to transplant patients. I think the, the question that we all have, and this certainly we do a lot of combination treatments as well, but one of the early questions was, is it safe, right? Is combination therapy adding immuno to a local regional therapy, is it safe for patients? Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have several studies that have been published, one out of Ryan Hickey's group in NYU that showed uh, about 30 patients with tear and a PD-1 inhibitor that was shown to be safe, very few uh, grade 3-4 toxicities. We also published our experience here at Sinai, about uh, 20 patients, taste 20 patients with tear that also had PD-1 inhibitor that showed it to be safe. Pierce Chow out of Singapore published a phase 2 study that combined uh, TEAR and PD-1, again, showed it to be very safe. So and I already cited the uh, Seoul National data with DERVA and TEAR that again showed it to be uh, quite safe. And we're having a bunch of studies that should read out soon. LEAP-12 should be reading out as well as Emerald-1. So those are all studies where combination with TACE and checkpoint inhibitors. So we'll see how those read out. But if I were a betting man, I would say that For sure. It will show to that that it's safe.
0: Terrence, what are your thoughts? Do you you feel that it's safe as well?
1: I think it's safe as well. You know, there are
2: recent consensus statements out of the uh, European Society of Organ Transplantation, which underscore that as well. I think that came out maybe this month. So I think it is safe. I think we're going to continue to get more data around that. And, you know, our institution was, I'd say, you know, very cautious about it. But as we move forward, you know, the data is bearing it out as well. I guess, is
0: there anything that I should be, like, let's say I'm doing some combination treatments, is there anything I should be watching out for? So first off, you know, let's say I have a patient that they want to try a Tiso bev. Is there anything that you would recommend from a treatment perspective, I, I'm leading a little bit, but is there anything that you would recommend on, on treatment for these kind of patients? How would you time it? Would you, would you have them hold the Bev, you know, to, from a certain point, anything like that?
1: So it's an interesting question that you ask about the Bev. Because from an interventional radiology perspective, our experience with Bev has usually been in metastatic disease. And in metastatic disease, we're getting these patients very differently than we are from HCC. With metastatic disease, we're usually getting them in a salvage setting for local regional therapies. They've usually tried a first, maybe even a second line therapy that will probably include Avastin or they're on maintenance Avastin. And so these individuals, and in the, in the purpose of Advastin is to disrupt the uh, arteries. We know this, surgeons know this, because the arteries fall apart. But that's what uh, Avastin is supposed to do. And so when we get these patients who've been on an Advastin for months, and they come, in, and, and the avastin has already worked, it's sometimes a nightmare going into these vessels to do our microcatheter and wire work, and it can lead to dissections and, you know, other complications. I think in the HCC setting, it really depends how long they've been on a TESOBEV. If you're in a place where it's coordinated care, and from the get-go, you're doing providing a transarterial-based therapy in conjunction with a TESOBEV within a short period of time, probably is, is not an issue with the BEV component. But I think it's a different story if a patient's been on a TESOBEV for, let's say, several months, and now you get the patient for transarterial therapy. Now, I think that you need to have a little bit more caution when going into that uh, artery.
2: And that's been our experience as well. I mean, I I think we've been fortunate in the sense that with coordinated care, we've been able to schedule the interventions typically before patients have started to get some of those therapies. So we, we tend to be first. But yeah, in those patients who had been on it or continue to be on it in the context of our therapies, we've had conversations about holding it for our procedures.
0: I think that was a great point. I never, I never quite thought about explaining it that way, but you're dead on it at, you know, saying that these guys haven't been on it for a very long period of time. And as long as we get our treatment at a somewhat reasonable time frame, we don't really see the, the long-term effects. I, that's a great point. I never actually thought about it that way, but certainly something for me to change in our practice as well, because routinely we were inclined to hold Bev if we were going to go down that route.
2: And there is the possibility, just to add on that to build on that, you know, metronomic dosing of BEV has been shown to normalize vasculature. So there is also this possibility that you are early on, at least, maybe seeing some improvement in the vasculature if you catch it early enough. I mean, the data is still, people are still looking at that. But, you know, there may be a benefit early on for some of our therapies.
1: For our listeners out there, you can also see it as an opportunity to engage with your medical oncologist to kind of teach them about what you do and the importance if local regional therapy, especially a transarterial based therapy is going to be in play, why it's important to send the patient to you a little bit earlier if they're thinking about it, because I guarantee you, your medical oncologist has no idea of what you do and the effects of all of that. They just know from a cerebral standpoint, okay, Bev may cause some problems for my interventional radiologist. But if you engage with them and explain to them exactly what you do, they may decide, okay, you know what? I may not use the BEV. I may go more towards a taste or Y90 first, and then maybe hold that for afterwards because it may jail out access for my interventional radiologist. So I see it as an opportunity for interventional radiologists to engage with conversations with our medical oncologists. Well-spoken, love it.
0: And now what about Dervitrimi? Does anything make you nervous from that regard? You know, I kind of thought that you sometimes see some bumps in LFTs, in patients that get durvalumib, but it tends to be mild. I'm all about it. Look, I I love Dervitrimi. We we use it quite a bit.
1: You know, talking to medical oncologists, I have heard that there is some trepidation when it comes to the CTLA4. Now, it's usually the stride regimen is is from my understanding a one time dose of the CTLA4, the tremilumab to prime the system. So far, you know, again, our patients have tolerated. Durva-Tremi quite well in conjunction with our local regional therapy, usually tear, But there is some concern about the uh, CTLA-4 component because of the toxicity.
2: Yeah, we've seen the same. It hasn't really impacted our practice in the context of TACE, but something we talk about with our colleagues and something we monitor. But I don't see, it hasn't been something in my experience that's limited its application.
0: All right, we're getting close to the end. I'm going to wrap up shortly. But I want to do a quick game time thing. I feel like it's it's a perfect opportunity to ask you guys to learn from the best of the best. So Terrence, I'm gonna lead off with you. We'll call it taste with Terrence. So would you favor C taste or deb taste? Why choose one over the other? And how do you do it?
2: So I tend to favor C taste for a couple of reasons. Number one, we do have some concern with toxicity with deb taste, and that can be tumor dependent, some of the data that Michael Solon's been generating through some of his net trials underscore that that concern. So we've been focused on, I've done both, uh, but I. We, but my preference would be taste for that reason. We're focused on being super selective. I think the trade-off, the sort of balancing act here is, you know, delivering drug in a delivery vehicle like Lapidol, but making sure that you're following that up with a sufficient amount of embolic. I think that if we look at the data, it is the embolic effect that is most therapeutic. There's a lot of interesting considerations when we think about about the drugs we're using and how they may or may not be working. So, you know, there is some data out there that, again, these molecular subtypes are different in the way they respond to drug and to the embolic effect. And so I think that consideration does factor in for us. P53 mutants versus beta-catina mutants will respond differently to taste. And so I think drug can play a differing role in those contexts. And so in my mind, I'm thinking a lot about how am I going to deliver the drug, but also make sure that I can deliver embolic so that I can take advantage of the ischemic effect. I think that, you know, Karen Brown's trial in JCO in 2016 is really the only, you know, randomized control data we have that really informs the relative roles of those two phenomena in toxicity. And so I think that I'm keeping that in the back of my mind and I'm focusing on making sure I have a, a, a satisfactory embolic effect. I think again, the challenges we come up against are endpoints and you know, how, we, how do we determine what the endpoint for the procedure is? And I think that's dealer's choice. I'm still looking at stasis, but I am using ConeBeam more and more to understand what the distribution of my embolization looks like and to inform, are there you know, an integrating software platforms that can inform on feeding vessels that I may not be recognizing, and integrating that into the data I'm getting from the staining has been really helpful in you know ensuring that I'm targeting all the vessels that need to be targeted.
0: So now, since you're C TASE guy, are you a docs only, or are you a,
2: a triple drug guy? What, how do you like to do TASE? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a con- conventional kind of guy. I still favor the triple drug regimen, in as much as I I think. You know, my particular, based on some of the data from our lab, right, I I don't think any of those drugs are particularly well suited to HEC, right? We know from the 1988 trial that DOCS in and of itself is barely better than nothing at all for the treatment of HEC, at least systemically. So I think if you're going to treat with drug, you want to think about, you know, the drugs we have getting as much of a variety of targeted drugs on board. I think the only drug we have data for that actually demonstrates potentiation by ischemia is mitomycin. So that's why I'm particularly, if I had to choose one, that's the drug I'm choosing. Because I know, you know, obviously this has been informed by drug availability and shortages and in different timeframes, we haven't had our choice of drugs. But if I'm choosing one drug, it's going to be mitomycin. But I think there is a huge opportunity and and I will shamelessly plug uh, some trials we have going on here at Penn that are, are thinking about a, a little more rationally designed taste cocktail that, and I, we might get a little bit far afield here, but I, I think we might start to think about taste and local regional therapy in general a little bit differently, not just as a cytotoxic therapy, but how does it condition the microenvironment? And if we're conditioning the microenvironment, we can think about how we can create dependencies through that conditioning. And then by identifying those dependencies, we can target them. And you know, you're know you seeing a lot more metabolic therapies come out, right? as we learned a lot more about tumor metabolism, we see clinical trials with single agent metabolic inhibitors where they're combining that with dietary interventions, right? You're creating dependencies by altering a patient's diet based on the tumor type. That's always amazes me because we can, we can change the diet of the tumor very, very quickly with our therapies, right? We don't have to put the patient on a diet. We can change what the tumor's seeing. And I think thinking about that in context of some of the new drugs is a really exciting opportunity. I know that's not directly on point, but I couldn't help myself
0: incredibly interesting and I I feel like talking to two of the best of the best that's where we're going to get to hear all the the cutting edge techniques and now it's my now it's my turn to abuse Ed so I am going to call this dosimetry with Ed and so I first off I think I want to ask you the tough question first I think to me multifocal HCC can be one of the most challenging from a RAD-SEG or from an ablative Y90 perspective to treat. And so I want to ask you, how do you treat multifocal HCC? And take it, take it as far as you want to take it.
1: I'll, number one, I'll, I'll agree with you 100% on that, Tyler. I think multifocal bilobar disease is the most difficult to treat with radioembolization. I don't think we've figured it out. And as you said, you had mentioned ablative dose. So the ablative doses are really, in my opinion, they're surgical principles. Yeah. So we've taken a page out of the playbook of our surgeons. And so when we do ablative type doses, it's either in the setting of a rad seg, where we sub segment and we're giving doses. If you follow the legacy study with, based on observational study, The Threshold seems to be 400 gray on a subset analysis that was performed and published in the European Journal of Nuclear Medicine that showed a complete pathologic necrosis rate. While it was complete response as well, according to Modified Resist, but a complete pathologic necrosis rate when that 400 gray threshold was observed. Again, not a prospective study where there was dose escalation done to see what the optimal dose threshold is, but uh, an observation of 400 gray and above. The Razor study as well also observed Very high doses absorbed tumor doses on post-Y90 PET of 1,000 gray. And so this is, I'm putting this into context of ablative dosimetry in kunode segments, usually less than a kunode, but the definition that was originally made is two or fewer kunode segments. Again, kind of a surgical anatomic resection. Another ablative type of concept is with portal vein invasion, where we're blasting away Etienne Guerin published in Dosisphere, where the dose threshold that he saw was 205 gray, where he saw a survival advantage in those individuals and higher objective response rates and median size of about, I believe it was about seven centimeters, so not small tumors, but larger tumors. Again, really blasting away at that, like a surgical principle. And the other one where we blast away is radiation lobectomy, potentially for purposes of hypertrophy of the future liver remnant, but also treating the tumor at the same time and observing tumor biology. If the patient truly is a potential surgical candidate, they're chop QA, they have very good underlying liver function, they should be able to take that hit to one lobe and hypertrophy the other lobe. Now, going back to your original question, multifocal disease, when we talk about those ablative settings, again, the portal vascular invasion, the RAD-SEG, the radiation lobectomy, I'm thinking in my mind, since you're a sports guy, I'm thinking of offense. We're thinking the best defense is a great offense. What drives me nuts about multifocal disease is now you have to start thinking about defense because you don't wanna harm the background liver. And so unless the patient has a high tumor to normal ratio, we're talking like four or five to one where you know that you're gonna get majority of your dose to the tumor and you have to take into consideration potentially the number of particles, specific activity, but you really have to try and calculate how much is the background liver gonna get from the dose that you're giving. That becomes very difficult. And so if it's multifocal unilobar, I'll do a radiation lobectomy for that, cross my fingers and hope that there's no progression in the contralateral lobe. But if it's bilobar, the way that I practice right now, and Terrence might like this a little bit, is I'll do tear to the side with the most disease burden and then try and pick off the other side with taste. Now, the other alternative is, as I said earlier in this podcast, is to do tear to the side of the most disease in an intermediate stage patient and then simultaneously put them on a systemic therapy, usually a checkpoint inhibitor, in combination with something else, either a CTLA-4 or a bevacizumab, and again, cross our fingers. And if they progress through that, then try and revert to taste for that contralateral lobe. But I agree with you, dosing for that multifocal disease is hard because we're trying to keep the dose to the background liver somewhere below about 50 grade because background liver damage can then occur. But if you're for instance, Marnik Slam out of, out of the Netherlands, does a great predictive modeling for really dosing for that and sparing the background liver.
0: I love it. I, what I'm going to take away from this is I heard particle count and sphere activity, and that's basically my love language when it comes to Y90, something that I truly will nerd out and geek out on. When I actually gave a talk on that, and you asked me a very good question that I now want to flip and ask you. I'm going to get you back. How do you treat a large central tumor because I think there's some there are some techniques and I thinking about this, I think there are certain techniques that you were probably trying to elicit out of me whenever you ask me that question. But I think there are certain critical techniques that it comes to when you're treating a large central tumor. How do you go about treating a large central tumor that you you might be able to get an ablative dose in? What are your considerations and how do you do it?
1: Yeah, usually when if you have enough experience, whether you do taste or tear when you see these central tumors, immediately, in the, in, depending on your mindset, you might be like, oh, yeah, I'm super excited for this. Or you might roll your eyes and say, okay, it's going to require a lot of work. So usually it's small um, kind of feeding vessels that come off proximally from your main vessels that go to either a segment five, six, seven, or eight. And the goal is to, number one, protect the non-tumoral parenchyma, which will be distal but also to drive your therapy into the tumor feeding vessels. Now, either these vessels are innumerable or they're too small for even a, let's say, 1.7 French microcatheter to navigate into. Or you might be all, if you want to, you might be there all day navigating into like seven different feeding vessels. So I found that the more elegant way of doing this is to either put in a six French guide and then simultaneously put a microcatheter with an occlusion balloon in the distal segment, occlude that, protect dry flow proximally, and then inject your therapy just proximal to that balloon. And it should go with the flow into the tumor feeding vessels because now there's not a competing flow of the normal parenchyma. And and you can do this, we've done this both with tear, uh, with glass microspheres, and also with conventional tastes. And it has been described by both, Bo Toskic described it I don't like the term that he uses, but he calls it the predator technique. <laughs> I, I just. And then uh, the Japanese have also described it with uh, taste, you know, flow diversion technique.
0: That's an incredible. So you're talking about doing tandem microcatheters through that six French guide catheter, correct? Correct. So I assume we're using like a, a sniper or maybe a neurocatheter, a scepter or something like that?
1: Yeah, both of those are, I think, acceptable. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Perfect. I, incredible. I, see, that's. This is perfect opportunity for me to just geek out and and be a a fan of of the best of the best. All right. When do you re-image patients? All right. Patients that are these multifocal, intermediate, advanced patients. When do y'all like to re-image and when do you make decisions on retreatment? And what makes you make a decision on retreatment? Terrence, you want to take a a lead? Sure.
2: You know, obviously, depending on the therapy we utilized, um, you know, for taste, we're imaging four to six weeks after the treatment. And then for tear, we tend to image around three months after the uh, treatment. You know, we're trying to be as aggressive as possible. There's clear data that repeat intervention is not only safe, but effective. And so when we're seeing we are limited in, in our biomarkers, and that's something that's a big challenge for interventionists generally. The biomarkers, we the imaging biomarkers we have are are not really designed to assess our therapies, but when we do have clear evidence of residual disease burden, we're trying to be proactive and reintervene when we think there's a target. So that can be as early as that first follow-up. we're not we're not generally waiting very long as if we see definitive evidence of residual disease.
1: I would say we're a little bit different in the sense that even with tear, we're following up at six weeks. Now, in the early stage in the razor, we showed that there was an objective response. high doses at four weeks' time. But the reason we follow up at six weeks is that we see them in the office and draw labs. If they're an alpha protein producing patient and it drops, but we don't see really any imaging change at that point, we're okay with that because we we predict that there's going to be imaging changes that follow with that radiation therapy. And bulky disease, multifocal disease, larger HCC, those imaging changes may not be evidence until that three-month mark that Terrence had talked about. But the reason we also bring them in at six weeks and also get imaging is we want to make sure that there is not progression in the untreated areas, because for us, three months is too long to catch something if it is progressing at a rapid rate. And we've caught some of these patients where they, uh, we treated, let's say, segment five lesion, and then they had multifocal disease at that six-week interval. That's the time, if it's an early stage patient, to then institute systemic therapy right away and hope that the patient is going to respond. But the majority of the time, you'll see there is no progression, and and that'll be a good sign, obviously, of the tumor biology. But we do want to catch those individuals who have an aggressive tumor biology that could potentially explode a tumor in their liver. And we have treated those patients with systemic therapy with checkpoint inhibitors, and we've had a few of them that have responded to that. And so for us, that's kind of a kind of moment um, because uh, it really made a difference in that patient's outcome. It's awesome.
0: I could probably stay on here for another three hours and keep asking you guys question after question after question because this is just like, this is a a dream to be able to to challenge you guys with some of the tough questions in the world of interventional oncology for HCC. But I think the podcast people are going to kill me if I keep this going forever. (laughs) So I want to try to wrap it up, but is there anything that you guys think I missed? Is there anything that, you know, any future... Do you, where do you think we're headed in the future in the, in the realm of immunotherapy and I.O. and interventional oncology? What, what would you guys kind of finish us up with? Feel, feel free to say that I covered it all and it was absolutely amazing. <laughs> that would, that's okay, too. Do you see us playing a big role in other cancers?
2: Well, I'll start with the first question. You know, where is this headed and, and what, what does the future look like? You know, I, I think that there are several trials that are coming that are underway that are going to really inform the role of local regional therapy in combination with immunotherapy, I think we're really just at the very beginning, right? We we don't have very much data at all. We're, we're practicing blind in, in many ways. And I think the systemic therapy trials, Himalaya, I'm Brave, have really demonstrated to me that, and you know, as well as launch and tactics have demonstrated the power of combination therapy. But I think there's a lot to learn about what those combination therapies are and how how to optimize them for the most therapeutic benefit. And I think that, you know, we do need at some point to start thinking about better biomarkers that inform our therapies. And so I think molecular subtyping is going to be the future. We know that's a really, really big focus for uh, oncologists at this point in terms of the trials that are going to be coming out and the postdoc analyses of these studies in terms of how they understand how to apply these therapies, right? Everybody's focused on the fact that there's only been those low levels of responses in the total number of patients. So what does that mean? You know, how do we start to understand who those bad actors are and how do we think about other therapies for those? And I think that's a huge opportunity for IR. I think the other aspect for us is going to be about better imaging biomarkers and how we develop more functional imaging strategies that can inform our therapies, not just necessarily that we need to treat again, but how do we use biomarkers to decide what to treat with? And, you know, I, I want to just emphasize that I think that we we have, we have a very unique role to play and we have multiple therapies we can offer patients. And I think that the more we play to that strength, the more we think about how we find the right therapy for the right patient, the bigger role we're going to play. And especially in the precision medicine era, I think we have a, a real opportunity. And I think Um, Just in answer to your second question, this paradigm plays out well across uh, a variety of different cancers. We continue to see the growth of local regional therapy across the oncologic spectrum. But I think it's going to take this same kind of information to really solidify our role. But I think, you know, we really need to be part of the studies that are defining these subtypes and then thinking about how we schedule our therapies because these drugs are going to behave In ways that influence how we apply our strategies. And I think if we don't, what I'm really most worried about, honestly, is if we are not thinking about that, that we're going to end up with trials where we've applied a certain schedule to our combination of local regional with immunotherapy, and we might see negative data. But obviously, that doesn't mean that it it won't work. It just means that we may not have applied it judiciously. And I, I don't want to walk past a real opportunity. So I think it really underscores the need to better understand how we think about combining treatments.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, when the first immunotherapy trials were being read out, I think there was a lot of trepidation about turf battles within the HCC space. And certainly we've seen some of this play out in certain practices, but I think it's instead of the, let's say, systemic therapy versus local regional therapy mindset, it has actually flipped to the complete opposite. And we're seeing this played out in industry with collaborations, with combination trials, with either TACE and, and checkpoint inhibitors or tear and checkpoint inhibitors, or even sometimes ablation and checkpoint inhibitors, because we're looking for h- higher response rates. And I think we've it's flipped to where we've developed a more cohesive multidisciplinary mindset. And historically, especially in the HCC space, the alliances that are were formed were really between interventional radiology and our transplant colleagues and our surgeons. Medical oncology really, to be quite honest, didn't have much to offer with serafinib. But now what we're seeing is even greater reliance and a multidisciplinary aspect to the care of HCC with medical oncology in terms of timing of systemic therapies, etc. For instance, it goes both ways, where local regional therapy could be first-line and then as the patient progresses, either combine further local regional therapy with systemic or to transition them at an earlier point to systemic therapy instead of constantly doing local regional therapy and, and, and seeing the function of the liver go down and then sending them to some systemic therapy. I think we're quicker to pull the trigger now and say, hey, let's give systemic therapy a shot here. And the flip as well, as I stated earlier, where the patient has just massive disease with vascular invasion everywhere, systemic therapy, you get that complete response but then two years later, you're getting breakthrough HCC, and we're doing RAD-SEGS or ablation for those patients, or maybe even TACE, Terrence. <laughs> uh, but um, I think it's more important than ever in this patient cohort. And this can also extend to metastatic disease with a multidisciplinary mindset, a teamwork mindset. And ultimately, who benefits the most are patients. When patients receive that multidisciplinary care, they're getting aspect of care from everybody instead of a siloed approach where you're just hammering with a screw. And so I think we are going more and more towards that type of mindset, which is, again, best for patient care. I 100% agree with Terrence. We have to figure out what is the optimal timing? Do we start checkpoint inhibitors first and then put on the local regional therapy? Do we start the local regional therapy first? and the checkpoint inhibitor, or what is the timing? Is it a week, is it it two weeks later, or is it simultaneously? I think these things are nuances that we have not investigated at all yet. And so it's very different if you're doing a local regional therapy, and you say, yeah, 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 we uh, did a combination therapy, but you started your systemic therapy four or six weeks later, well, that's really adjuvant therapy. That's not really combination therapy per se. And so, well, we started, you know, uh, you know a checkpoint inhibitor six weeks before, and now we're adding local regional therapy afterwards. Well, that, that's kind of like adjuvant therapy. So what, what is the right timing, I think, is a very important question that we need to answer.
2: And I think further to that, you know, how we're thinking about our interventions when we know we're going to be layering in these systemic therapies. You know, some of the things that I worry about you know, when I'm, when I'm doing taste, you know, is that microenvironment too hypoxic? Is it a space where the immune cells can't function? Or when we're doing radioembolization, you know, have we created an environment where we're really ablating um, those immune cells as well? You know, these are, these are considerations we're going to have to sort out how we change our therapy in the context of um, the systemic theory to, to optimize it in combination with the scheduling.
0: I love it. I I think the key takeaway is that these are exciting times. And it seems that it only stands to benefit the patients, the IR community and the patients as a whole, really. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about providing the best, most optimal care for the patient that's in front of us. And so incredibly exciting times. Thank you so
1: much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at
2: underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza,
0: and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles,
1: Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Subli. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Willie
2: Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana.
1: Thanks again for listening.